Hello and welcome to Cronscast, the official podcast of SFF Chronicles, the world's largest science fiction and fantasy community. I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Pete Long. Today we are talking about one of the strangest classics in British fantasy, Mervyn Peake's Titus Grown, the first book in Peake's Gormenghast series. Published in 1946, it's an example of general fiction without any semblance of the fantastical, yet earns the fantasy label for its atmosphere, setting and mood. Peake wrote two more books in the series, Gormenghast and Titus Alone, before his death in 1968 cut short the completion of the fourth novel, Titus Awakes, which was completed by his widow Maeve Gilmore and published posthumously in 2009. The series has been included in several lists of the greatest fantasy novels, including Cawthorn and Moorcock's Fantasy, The 100 Best Books, Pringle's Modern Fantasy, The 100 Best Novels, and the Bloom's 300 Must-Read Fantasy Novels. It has also been adapted by the BBC for a radio drama in 1984 and a TV miniseries in 2000. And joining us to talk about Titus Grown is the author, Toby Frost. Hi. Toby is the author of 10 novels. Hello, Toby. Yes. Slow down. <laughs> He's the author of the Space Captain Smith books, published by Myrmidon Books, which are science fiction comedies about hapless British space adventurer Isambard Smith and his disreputable crew, which Toby likens to Blackadder meets Flashman in space, so very British. Toby's had one written uh, uh, novel called... I'm sorry, I'll start that again. Toby's... Uh, written one novel called Strachan and several short stories in the Warhammer 40,000 universe, which are published by Games Workshop's publishing wing, Black Library. He's also self-published two fantasy novels, Up to the Throne and Blood Underwater, set in a magically supercharged version of the Renaissance. He's currently working on a third in the trilogy. His most recent book, The Imposters, is a science fiction adventure about robots, spies and secret identities, and he's represented by our good friend, John Gerald. So welcome along, Toby. Hi there. Excellent. Good Great to have to you here. along. It's, it's been, uh, yeah, you can talk now. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. it's been, uh, it's good to have you because we've been trying for ages to get to, yeah. to organize something where, where we can, you know, find a date that it works for everybody. We've been in talks for, for months and months, but, you know, life gets in the way. But it's good to see you here finally. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, good, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, everything is good. Everything is good. We're tr- trundling along. And we've got a very curious book. I'm very interested to see where our conversation takes us today. So Titus Grown, first book in the Gormenghast series. Tell us, why did you pick Titus Grown? Um, one of the reasons I chose it was because um, it was one of, the, one of the books that really struck me when I was younger. Um, I first sort of ran into it when I was about 14. It was in the school library and uh, the covers were really nice. I think it was uh, Alan Lee who drew the cover, um, that particular cover, which uh, I think he also did some illustrations for Lord of the Rings. But um, I tried reading Yeah, he was a famous Tolkien artist. I think he worked on the Peter Jackson films as well, didn't he, yes, Alan Lee? Yes, he did, didn't he? Yeah. Um, tried reading it when I was 14 sort of bounced off it, came back to it when I was about 17 and just loved it, was absolutely fascinated by it. Um, it really drew me in. Um, I also think it's a really interesting book because it's um, a classic of fantasy that has nothing to do with Tolkien. And I don't say that as any kind of insult to Tolkien, just that it was written before Lord of the Rings and a lot of fantasy 
um, has sort of been a reaction to or in some ways uh, an imitation of or influenced by Tolkien. And uh, Gorming, the Gormenghast books kind of exist in this weird little bubble of their own. So I thought they were quite interesting to talk about. Um, they've got this sort of status as a classic, but no one's quite ever given them that a sort of huge adaptation. And it feels like they're kind of always waiting to be adapted or sort of interpreted or something like that. Um, yeah, I thought they'd be... Well, yeah, we, we mentioned the BBC miniseries. Did you did you remember watching that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, by and large, I think it's pretty good, actually. Yeah, um, it's not bad. I remember it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty old now, 20, 23 years, 23 years old. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, but I remember it. The cast was decent. Yeah. Um, and the production values were pretty good. Yeah. It seemed like um, but, a big deal when it came out. It yeah. did seem like a big yeah. deal, didn't it? You're right. And but but they they condensed the whole of the first two novels into four episodes. Yeah, yeah. And I I'm, I think that's partly a reflection on the way that the books are written, which is with this hugely dense prolix style, which we will talk yeah. about. Yeah, it doesn't. I don't think it lends itself very well to um, a screen narrative adaptation. No. I think that's right because it, it's, it's almost like opera. You know, it's, in an opera, it takes like fifteen minutes to say hello, how are you, and it's fact, almost like that in Titan. Now you said it, I almost think if you were to adapt um, the Gormenghast novels today, you might almost think about going entirely computer generated because yeah. so much of it is about the setting and how it looks. That yeah. being able to do that absolutely perfectly rather than have to scout and scout and scout for locations mm. i think would be a huge benefit so yeah. maybe it's day for a big adaptation that's coming closer yeah i think the bbc one um used models and was um was pretty good actually in, in terms of that but you know obviously it had limitations at the time it was made um in interestingly apparently there is an opera of gormenghast um, oh really? <laughs> yeah, apparently in 1998, someone called Ermin Schmidt, who apparently was uh, from a prog band called Can, um, made this. Oh, uh, Can? What the the, the Ger- is that? The German, German band, band yeah. from the 70s with yeah. the Japanese singer. Uh, I know nothing about Can. Oh, they're uh, they're really weird, but they're quite good. Right. Apparently, he made what, what a bit like Gormenghast, I suppose. I can see the, the I can understand the connection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, shall I explain? Oh, well, try to explain what it's about. Um, I mean, Titus Grown is, is set in a castle called Gormenghast, which no location is given for Gormenghast. Um, it seems to exist on its own, really. Uh, the castle is absolutely vast, probably the size of a small town, and falling apart, basically. There's a sense of collapse and weirdness and sort of decay throughout the whole book. Um, it's about the first two years, really, of the of the um, the new earl's life. Uh, Titus Grown himself is the heir to the earldom of Gormenghast. Um, he will be the seventy seventh earl, I think it is. That's um, right. He is the son of Sepulgrave, um, the current earl, and um, Countess Gertrude. Um, and it's basically while you know, he's a baby, he doesn't really do very much. The real, um, the real, uh, here is the wrong word, protagonist of Titus Grown is a character called Seerpike, who um, 
is a sort of ruthless character who rises from being uh, a sort of scullion in this vast kitchen in the castle um, to, um, well, up and up and up the social ranks, basically, um, by various sort of dangerous and ruthless plans, and eventually intends to take over the entire castle. Um, it, it does function as a whole book, but it's a bit in a bit like uh it ends sort of you know you know you need more to finish the story basically um it's a little bit like fellowship of the ring which i didn't want to compare it to at all um in that way um you know it rounds off but it does need more yeah it's certainly not comparable to tolkien well yeah you're right it predates tolkien although it doesn't predate you know tolkien's milieu the, the middle earth world it doesn't at all but it does predate lord of the rings but it's completely different i um it's was thinking about the setting and you mentioned that um gormengast the castle the town and the the sort of settlements outside the castle you're never given it's very non-traditional fantasy even though it's a classic and it's like 80 years old you're never given a map at the beginning of the book which you're given in all fantasy as rule one you get a map don't get a map with Gormengast because so you've, you're you're sort of suspended in in yeah. this ether. You don't know where it is, and I think that's because um, Gormengast isn't representative of any one particular place or time. So no. even though ostensibly it has the the superficial trappings of the fantasy setting, so castle basically <laughs> castle um, earl stroke king. Um, sort of some sort of corruption of the land, which is the dilapidation of the castle, but it's not representative actually of medieval Europe, not necessarily. It's not the Roman Empire. It's not uh, Western Europe, modern day. It's 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 all of these things. It's it's just emblematic of a society in complete decay. And this is where I think you can see something that it does resemble, and that it is actually in a fit of a genre with and that is if you reach back to the um early gothic romances um otranto um melm of the wanderer um i've forgotten the name of the one with the genies but the whole big castle in a time without space and the crumbling and the strange rituals it's very much a gothic throwback, I think, but yeah. in a way that doesn't quite feel related. It's just the same impulse just popping up again. I think the I, I like the gothic idea, but it's not quite gothic because the the gothic usually is uh, represented from the perspective of the outsider or the intruder into the gothic. So somebody entering into an otherworldly realm or, or something Steer that doesn't Pike, fit isn't well, steer pike an intruder into the castle society coming he's, from he's, the he is an intruder yeah he's, he's coming away. from yeah yeah he is he's a disruptor certainly yeah i'm i mean if he he the book in in the opening so a couple of chapters he kind of flees the kitchen and starts this sort of trek literally climbing upwards but also sort of upwards in this in their society and if he had stayed there, then I suppose he would have just been a sort of automaton who would, you know, like the other people in the kitchen, endlessly just cleans the kitchen and, you know, makes food for the other members of the castle. So, yeah, I suppose you've got him. Um, in the sequel, 
Gormenghast. Um, you've got Titus himself, who you know is now a young man, and he becomes a sort of disruptive character because he doesn't want to be to do the things that he's required to do by ritual and duty. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting one about um, about gothic novels. I, I agree with that. That I was thinking about this earlier. The other thing I could that springs to mind is uh, is Dickens, possibly. But maybe, names are very D- Dickensian. Yeah, you've got people like Doctor Prune Squalor, the uh, Castle Doctor, yeah, uh, Sour Dust, Flag and Sour Dust, the yeah. Ritual, and people like that, who have got these sort of bizarre names. Um, one thing I find quite interesting about it is calling it Gothic makes it sound very heavy, very depressing, and I find there's a sort of lightness to it. But I don't know if, if other people would find that, that there's something about the writing and a very slightly sort of sly, slightly tongue-in-cheek quality to some of it. Yeah, um, it's not laugh-out-loud humour, no. but it's, it's, a, it's a, dry, mm. a dry, there's a dry wit to it. So, some, yeah. some parts are funny. Yeah. There's um, a quote I found in um, Michael Moorcock's um, Wizardry and Wild Moments, and Moorcock was a big... Yeah. Big fan, and I think if we were to talk about um, Gormenghast and later fantasy, would t- sorry that we would talk about Moorcock. But to just come on to this subject of lightness, he said, of all modern fantasists, Mervyn Peake was probably the most successful at combining the comic with the epic to produce a trilogy which can be read and reread for its insights into our own lives, showing our hopes and fears in a light which is often outrageously funny, and. What you said um, reminded me very much of that quote because I think that is an aspect that its fans very much take on board, the way that it deals with these matters, which are quite dark, but in a very light, almost farcical manner. Yeah, it's, well, almost, it's, it's almost absurd, isn't it? It's, it's, an, yeah. it's an absurd piece. Yeah. It's a very strange piece. And and I, it is very dark. I think there's it's almost... Or existential terror because these these characters are just locked in like you used the word automata before mm. and all of the characters with the exception of maybe prune squalor uh, and certainly steer pike uh, all of and latterly titus but not in this novel all of the characters are basically automata and they're just they have no agency at all and it's a yeah. very strange very strange book well, the, in that what, respect because there's a reasonable yeah. there's, a, there's what 10 to 15 main principal players Mm. in the novel and almost none of them have any direct agency flay and flay and swelter maybe to a little bit but even then they're the only point to their existence is serving the uh, the earl sepulgrave and hating each other that's it and and and, i mean we don't even get a it's a very strange uh, enmity between the two because we never get an explanation for why they hate each other and it's quite possible that they don't even know why they hate each other that's right they just do, so that, and and all of the characters are locked into this this existential perpetual grind of ritual and yes, ritual is the tradition sort of, of 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 Gormenghast. Um, there's a bit um, where we see Sepulcrave going about his daily duties, and they're really bizarre. You know, they're absolutely strange sort of rituals that he has to carry out. I think one of them is he has to go to a certain cupboard and scratch a symbol on the back of it and on a certain day at a certain time. And nobody knows why he's doing this, or but he's got to do it. And there's this, this character, Sourdust, and then his son, Barquentine, uh, who's the master of ritual, who's the closest thing that um, the Gormenghast world has to a sort of 
you know, a priest or a pope or, you know, some kind of bishop who, whose job it is to kind of tell him where to go at what time, which ritual to follow. But yeah, he's more like a PA, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. He, he sort of organises his calendar. And there's very little, there's no reason ever given for this. It's just what happens. And yeah. you're right about the absurdity. Um, one of the other things that it does remind me very slightly of is Alice in Wonderland, actually. Um, because it's got that combination of madness and logic um, that it's crazy, but it's never sort of totally ridiculous. You know, it's never sort of laughed at. It's you know, plausible. Yeah. There's a plausibility to it. Yeah. There's a sort of weight to it. Um, it's never quite, it never quite admits it's silly. You know, it, it always sort of, it always well, takes. I, I think that, that, that even I think, fun. yeah, I think that's tied into the fact that the place is so dilapidated and crumbling and it's, it's ossified. That's the word. It's ossified because it's caught in, it's, it's trapped by its own traditions and it's trapped by its own rituals and it's unable to break out of them. And the characters are unable to break out of the, their daily cycles, their daily rituals. They're unable to break out of their own, uh, the, the trappings that they find themselves in, like the, 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 the aunts, what their names? Cora and Clarice. Cora and Clarice, yeah, yes. Who are unbelievably stupid characters. I mean, yes, it's, that's it's, quite, it's, quite, it's, quite, it's quite wonderful, actually, how oh, stupid great. these characters are and how manipulable they are. But the, because the, the castle and the whole society is so ossified, it's you, you mentioned, I'm pleased that you mentioned the words uh, priest or bishop for, uh, for sourdust and barpentine, because the whole thing seems like there's a theological structure to what they're doing. So ritual and, and um, tradition and participatory uh, gatherings but it's totally removed from any sort of religious framework yeah. and it's, re- it's removed from an ethical framework as well. And it's, yeah. re- it's removed from any sort of um, guiding principle. It's just there to exist for its own perpetuation. Yeah. And there's nothing there to grow the society. There's nothing there to replenish society. There's nothing there to revivify the society. When we, uh, a few weeks ago, we, we talked with um, Brian Wigmore about King Arthur Oh yeah, and the whole point of, of Excalibur about the film specifically, mm. but we talked oh, yeah. about the whole mythos really, and one of the principal themes, and this is, I mean, you you know, this is principal theme across fantasy is the revivification of the land, especially where the lands become corrupted for whatever reason, whether it's the, land the blindness of the state or the corruption of the state or war or pestilence, whatever, you know, prophecy, the chosen one, whoever that might be, or whatever it might be and the revivification of the land. It's a classic fantasy theme. And in here, it's not revivification. There's no, there's no re- replenishment and making the land good again. It's just, it's like a living fossil. It's just sort of, it, there's inertia. That's all it's living for. It's living but to perpetuate itself. I think you can see attempts to revive the land, revive the society. And... It's interesting because the classic image of fantasy is um, an external force must be resisted and then the land will come back into balance. And here it's the internal force has gone completely out of balance and it's the external force, the hero, villain, steer pike, who is 
trying to revive things, albeit for his own selfish ends. And I think also the um, subplot with Kada. Yes. Yeah. And her um, fleeing the castle and having the child. Mm. Again, it, it points in the same direction, but it's very much from coming from the opposite direction. And it's not talking about the triumph. It's talking about the attempt that, in this case, doesn't actually quite work, but does still change things. Yeah. Things, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think this whole idea of the land in fantasy just doesn't really come into Gormenghast and Titus Grown, um, because there is there doesn't seem to be a land. You know, there's no sort of... Um, which takes me to the point of the world building in this, which is quite different to the world building in a lot of, you know, modern post-Tolkien fantasy, that... Some of it just doesn't li- line up, you know. Um, there's this description of the of the kitchen, which is you know full of the sort of carcasses of animals and so on. We have no idea where these animals are, are, are raised, you know. Um, who who gave Doctor Prune Squaller his doctorate? You know, there's no yeah. sort of <laughs> idea that the outside world kind of. I think it's I think it's Gormenghast. There's a reference to the children in the castle school learning French. Ooh. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You get an idea of the education because you yeah. have the schoolmasters in the second book, exactly. don't you? Yeah. And, yeah. And you wonder, well, where are they going to go to speak French? Is this in England? It sort of doesn't yeah. add up in a way. And if you want to look at it in that kind of um, quite rigid sort of almost like um, the rules of a role playing game or something like that, it, it doesn't make sense. But actually, in its own, that's not how you're really supposed to look at it, I don't think. Well, that's it. I mean, is it, this is the key question I think about Gormagast, is it actually a fantasy novel? I think it is, but I think it's very different to the uh, main strand of fantasy, the main tradition of fantasy. I think it's drawing from something which isn't the Arthurian legends, and it really isn't the legends of anywhere, actually. Um, it's drawing, I think, from a sense of sort of almost morbidity, you know. Oh, definitely. I mean, you mentioned the um, the uh, the Gothic novels, you know, that sort of inward-looking, morbid, unhealthy sort of, you know, feeling. I think it draws from that as much as anything else. Yeah. I think um, it's drawing from the morbidity of the 20th century as well. I mean, the, the, the steer pike certainly, I, I think, is emblematic of communism that's, that's my big take on steer pike and he would have been and peak would have been writing at the same time as people like well he was this i mean this predates 1984 by two years yeah which sort of staggered me a little bit because steer pike is almost like a uh uh a prototype for some of the the party members in 1984 um, with his agitation, he's and Peak would have been a contemporary of people like Malcolm Muggeridge as well, with uh, his dispatches from the Soviet Union, yeah. and and I think that the the, the crumbling state of Gormenghast, the the city castle, is rewarded for its ossification with the cha- with the agent for change that it deserves for not being able to change properly and not being able to manifest itself in the correct way over time. So it, it, it crumbles, it dilapidates. And when change comes, it's too brutal and sudden and cunning and clever for 
the state to actually be able to to understand what's happening to it is too brutal. And Steer Pike is very clever and very, very manipulative. And he's he's too disruptive for the castle to be able to cope with him. And I think I think there's something going on there. I although I don't know Peak's background, so well, I might be sort of clasping at straws there. Is actually quite interesting regarding this because um he was um he was a war artist. Um he painted apparently some satirical pictures about Hitler, um, which sort of got him the job kind of thing. And towards the end of the war, he was um, with the uh, British troops who entered the concentration camp at Belsen, which, um, as you might imagine, sort of affected him very greatly and sort of disturbed him very greatly. So I think he had that sort of first-hand vision. And there's certainly bits of uh, Titus alone, which seems straight from World War II. Um, there's a section about refugees and a sort of sinister man on the run, which feels very, very much like that sort of a post-World War II feel. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would have seen Steerpike. Yeah, I mean, as I'm not sure I'd call him either a communist or a fascist, but a sort of a dictatorial character. You know, he's, he's certainly a psychopath. will for power. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's another thing to bear in mind about Peake's background that might have came into things here which he was actually born in china mm. um yeah and he was born right during the revolution and founding of the republic of china he only i think the family only fully relocated to england when he was 11 yeah I so think, yeah yeah he would have that would have been one of his formative experiences the whole watching a society change brutally. And a very subversified society, I suppose, in parts. Um, yeah, that that's the BBC adaptation. Um, its sets and some of its look, some of its costumes leans quite heavily on that, actually. Um, there are some sort of clearly Chinese influences in the look of it. So, yeah, I wonder about that. Um, apparently his dad was a missionary. So... I do wonder, actually, if, if Peak sort of grew up in, um, again, a sort of quite shut-off environment. Yeah. It seems quite likely, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. Well, Gormenghast, yeah, it's, it's, we've already said it's it's completely isolated. There's no yeah. mention of the of the outside world at all, apart from, you know, there's there's a little bit of a, um, sort of heathland yeah. uh, outside the castle and a couple of settlements, and that's it. We mm. don't, there's it's almost perfect isolation for all of its vastness. Yeah. And we don't get to see the majority of what happens inside the castle walls. Presumably there are residential districts inside the castle walls. There must be yeah. some sort of dilapidated industry going on inside inside the castle walls. We don't see any of that. But and each it, of the characters are, are, are sort of consumed by their isolation. Sorry, Toby. No, I mean, I was going to say, I think we see that Dr. Prunescola has a house. So presumably there are houses, um, and his sounds um, like it's a little bit nicer um, than the uh, than the rest of the castle. Um, he's quite an interesting character because, along with Steerpike, they seem to be the only char- two characters much capable of reflection. Um, mm, that's you've got right. These ten characters who have almost no agency, and it's true. You know, they do just go about their daily business of keeping the castle going. I think in terms of reflection, I would add one other character to that, and that's Fuchsia. Yes, actually, that's good. And 
she is particularly interesting in terms of reflection because the daughter of the Earl and Countess. Yeah. Yep. She is in far less of a position to change what she is doing, um, who she is with. She is far more in a stratified position than Steer Pike, the upstart, or Dr. Poon Scholar, who's in this interestingly nebulous position. And therefore, there's a lot of frustration in her mm. chapters. Yeah. yeah. She's not worldly, but she's not stupid by any means. No, no. And you no. feel like she's one of the she's possible, with the exception of Titus, who's just a baby. Is one of the one of the characters, or she's the only character, I suppose, because Titus is a baby that has the potential to be saved from this yeah. doom loop that Gormenghast is trapped in. Yes, um, it's just occurred to me that I've, I've if if uh, Fuchsia was to to take charge, I have no idea who she'd marry. Yeah, again, it's that question of who makes yeah. for a doctor. Well, it's it's strongly her attraction to Steerpike is is played on quite overtly. Yeah, he he gives her feelings that she doesn't quite understand. Yeah, and he and for a seven Steerpike's seventeen, he's a kitchen boy. He's not particularly attractive. He's got sort of no. hunched, pointy shoulders. He's got a strange sort of ugly-ish face, but he's a man he's of action. Leading the field of one. Well, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's le- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, by quite a long way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. And everybody in this book looks strange. You know, I think there's um, – Pete, Pete um, added some illustrations, and they're really sort of cartoony, and everybody is weird. You know, yeah. they're all really peculiar, possibly inbred, strange people. And Fuchsia is probably one of the more normal-looking ones, frankly. She, um, yeah, she must be. But she's attracted to – to steer pike and he knows this i mean he's very sophisticated for a 17 year old yeah. boy yeah he's he not is. he's not frozen you know with fear like most 17 year old boys in the in the face of a uh, an attractive 15 or 16 year old girl he knows exactly what he's doing which you know it, and that's because he's a psychopath and he's he's got his confidence levels are through the roof and he's also competent but his competence is only in in the in the realm of manipulation and cunning and and uh, and exploitation, uh, but she do- she doesn't know this, and so because she's quite naive, she's led a very sheltered life, literally, and she the her only uh, her only means of escaping the the uh, the drabness of the castle is to go to her attic with her things, which Steerpike uh, interrupts. When yeah. you said he he's climbing the castle, he literally climbs the castle walls or uh, some of the castle towers to escape, and he ends up in. Fuchsia's attic, her secret place, hmm. and she's a bit bamboozled by him. Yes, and because he's again, he's so different, and he he knows he can play on that. He plays on that with the two stupid aunts. He yes. plays on that with uh, Irma Prunesqualer, the yes. doctor's wife, and yes. he eventually yes. plays on it with the Earl Sepulgrave himself, mm, and probably Prunesqualer as well, actually. Mm. Yeah. For reasons that are never quite made clear, it probably because, well, possibly just because he's intelligent, it, it seems to be very drawn to him um, to begin with, and then sort of becomes increasingly suspicious of him. Um, I yeah. think that opening scene where Steer Pike has manipulated Fuchsia into taking him along to see the doctor, and he's making the case for why the doctor should give him a position. It's, it's one of the scenes that stuck most from the book with me. And I think part of it is 
it's the way that you can see the Doctor appreciating Steer Pike on several levels. And the main level, though, is as a novelty. Here yeah. is someone who is yeah. alive, expressing themselves, yeah. intelligent. And there's nothing that indicates that the Doctor actually needs an assistant. But he does need someone who's intelligent and alive. And that is how the Doctor accepts Steer Pike. And even if I think, even at this stage, he's possibly a little suspicious. Yeah. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a good point. He represents some sort of intellectual stimulation for the yeah, doctor. And, and yeah, and it's sort of implied that Prin- well, Prince was stuck with his sister Irma, who is um, there's a great expre- there's a great phrase. She is cruelly laden with the family features. Um, <laughs> and, um, he's stuck with his sort of you know a very irritating sister and the rest of the castle. Um, uh, yeah, I think he's 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 sort of he's one of the few you know as as this character who can who is a grown-up, unlike Fuchsia, but is capable of reflection and thought. I think he probably is extremely bored, and he probably welcomes Steerpike. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. He's the sort of intellectual of the castle, I suppose. Um, he's certainly taken to be the intellectual of the castle. He's Again, he's sort of as eccentric and weird as the rest of them, with his wittering, fluty language and the way his habit of tittering every other word. Yes, <laughs> he's half mad as well i mean he, he's, he's sort of like a sort of rather camp mad scientist or something like that with this sort of shock of hair and pointy nose and glasses there's an org actually um i read somewhere there's an argument that prune squalor is modeled on i forget the actor's name but a character from uh james wales frankenstein um as a mad scientist character from that um, oh right there, there's there's probably an argument to be had as to whether Prune Squaller is, given that he's this sort of arch perennial bachelor, um, whether he's actually sort of taken to be read as, as gay or not, I don't know. Um, I mean, possible. that's an interesting subject because um, in the research I did for this, um, Mervyn Peake spent a lot of time in artist communes in, on Sark, the Isle of Sark. Mm. Yeah. which at the time there were also a lot of variously gay people there. It's not like he was never around such people. No. They never had any influence on him. It's quite possible. Yeah. That- yeah. Um, I, I noted that somewhere that um, I think it was before, yes, it was before he wrote this. Peake did a lot of illustrations for the books and one book he illustrated um, was a book called All This and Bevan Too, which was um, a humorous book by Quentin Crisp, who actually, I don't know if they've ever met, but Prune Squalor does remind me very slightly of Quentin Crisp. Um, so I, I, I do wonder who he's, you know, if, he's, if there's something there too. Yeah, It could be. I mean, there's very little of love whether it's romantic yeah. or you know procreative or there's mm. you know marriage there's there's very little love in the castle there's a great um, line about um oh the uh the 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 uh countess the count and countess uh Steppelgrave and gertrude it's something like their brief and embarrassing union uh that produced titus <laughs> yeah well <laughs> it's it's romance it's kind of surprising that the the early i mean he's he's painted as this decrepit old man but it, so it's kind of surprising that you know at least one part of him still works enough to 
to produce an heir. I I think he just lives in a library reading books and that's that's Well, he lives in the library reading books. He's like Prospero, isn't he? He's just like, he doesn't care about his, his castle state at all. He just wants to be with his books. And his wife is a complete, completely spiteful fruitcake who lives with her birds and cats. And yeah, uh, it's, it's, there's no, they, they're hardly ever together in the same room. Yeah. Certainly not. So there's, there's no marriage. No. 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 It's, there's, um, while, you know, while the fantasy, we've said that the, the land aspect is, isn't there. Again, the, the romance sort of aspect of fantasy isn't there as well. That sort of daring do feel. Um, you know, heroism. Just well, as- it's kind of there in Steerpike, but well, it's corrupt. Again, that's yeah, a corruption. Mm. It's like when he barges into uh, Fuchs Attic, you know, he is this sort of dramatic, exciting figure. But yeah. and he big- knows it. Yeah, remember that sword stick he gets. Yes, yes. Yeah. He gets his sword stick, but it's a, he's a corruption of the heroic figure. So even though, like I said, I I, I believe that. He's he's the disruptor that the castle deserves because the castle has just allowed itself to fall into ruin. So the disruptor that they eventually gets is a spoiler. You know, it's, it's yeah. And he he does present himself as the hero. So there's a, there's a big set piece in the book, which is one of and there are not very many set pieces, but one of them is the fire in the library. Yeah, and he sets himself up as the heroic savior, yeah. saving the entire family from a fire that he started. I don't, with the help of the two idiot sisters. <laughs> I don't know if this is, um, you know, something that most people would agree with. I think Peake's quite good at writing action, actually, in his own yeah, style. I, I think so. It's, it's a very strange book because I, I, I think the action and the dialogue is brilliant. Mm. Yeah. But there it's are a- just these mountains of descriptive text yeah. in between them. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> after... After I read it, I I fair dripped bile about the book, to be honest. Um, <laughs> well, you know that's kind no, of. I got I got some abusive voice notes off of you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Why did you make me read this through five hundred pages of this? And with a bit of space in my mind, I now look a lot more kindly on it. But I remember thinking at the time, almost this would work better as a short story collection because it's so much about the atmosphere. And the prose, rather than um, the the narrative, the plot, the chain of events, and what Dan was just saying, these are But I think that is the thing, yeah. Because of all this long atmospheric passages, I think people do almost discount when the action happens, and it is great. I think for me, the best action passage comes right at the end when. Um, I have forgotten their names. Flames, yeah. Yes, are hunting each other. Fight scene. Yeah, that's right. It's it's very drawn out, but it is gripping. Yeah, yeah. it's really good. Uh, that's really good. There's a knife fight as well between um, Cade's two lovers. Um, yes. yes, outside. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite violent in places. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's quite. There's a sort of viciousness under it all um, that we see again in, in Gormenghast later on. Um, yeah, that there is a sort of violence to. to to the book as well and when he does do that he's really good i think a lot of it is peak just writing whatever he wants almost yeah and not having um the, any rules to follow even the rules of a sort of epic saga or something like that um which is both a strength and a weakness um there are bits that i think frankly are far too long you know i think the cadre subplot goes on and on um 
there are bits that I know other people find really irritating. Um, there's, but and he does do strange linguistic things. Um, at one point, he lapses into present tense for about fifty pages. Um, there's a banquet scene where all the characters are the main characters are sitting around a table, and Pete does this very modern um, stream of consciousness effect, where each character gets basically a page long sentence of what they're thinking. And then he yes. jumps to the next character. I think it's called The Reveries. And it's quite sort of experimental and strange, you know. Um, and I think part of it is just because he's just doing whatever he likes. You know, it's just a kind of a weird flight of fancy, you know, strange. Flight of fancy, sorry, not fancy. Yeah. Uh, as much as it is a fancy novel. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah. It's got... I, I do like that scene of The Reveries because that's... I think that's probably peak at his most playful, I would say. And he's quite playful throughout the book, but that it that's genuinely funny. Yeah. That's very funny, the reveries, when you actually when you start to get inside the characters' heads. I think that's something not that there's much good. going on in a yeah. lot of their heads. Like yeah. Nanny Slag is just, it's, it's, just perpetually worried and terrified of everything and Cora and Clarice are just these hideous postures of envy and entitledness and spitefulness. If I remember and, rightly, don't they have the exact same yes, touch? Just they do the have the exact same touch. Yeah, see a bar yeah. for something like that. Yeah. One for the other one's thoughts. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I think he's the characters are really strong. Obviously, they're grotesque. Yeah. Um, but I think also it is a book about character. You know, that they, they are, they're not, how can I put this? They're not really archetypes. You know, I was going to say that one of the things it reminds me of as well is a sort of um, not a medieval style fantasy, but a kind of country house full of um, sort of decayed and strange aristocracy um, seen without any sort of affection. Um, um, A sort of Downton Abbey where everyone is mad. Um, And Quite spot on. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's. I don't quite know what um, if there's a tradition. Like Lovecraft writes Woodhouse, that sort of thing. Lovecraft writes Woodhouse. Now I like that. <laughs> I'm sure there's a crossover somewhere, but uh, yeah, Lovecraft writes Woodhouse. Yeah, I think better written, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's got that strange gloom. But it's also oh, it's. It, I think it's totally nihilistic. I mean, it's it's filled with existential angst. This book. Which maybe is is a result of the war and the societal upheavals that Peak saw, but it, I think it's filled with angst at how a society changes and what do, what what can an individual do when the the gears of motion and fate are just inexorably grinding everybody within them. So the that the Earl is the seventy sixth Earl yeah. uh, of Golmengast, and the seventy seventh is on the way. But there's no sense that anything has changed for no. however many centuries yeah. that that period of time encompasses. I find it interesting that there's no, we don't know anything about the previous cells as well. Um, mm-hmm. There's no mention of what they've done or or who they are. Well, they, I, I think that's intentional because yeah. because that they're just they're just a, a huge morass that is the past. Yeah, and there's no change. You can you can see it in the the dusty uh, day-to-day rituals of the castle. It's That's that just word. how it's been for so long. Yeah, it's that, that word, word again. 
because mm. we don't have their history as people, we just know of them as automata who did their part as elves. Yeah, functionaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, functionaries. It's- good word. I mean, they're sort of serving the castle, but not much more. Um, it's almost like a system that has no purpose, but hasn't realised it has no purpose. Yeah, and then Steerpike turns up. He's the only one who's got any ambition. And because he's the only one who's got his ambition, it's it's, it's like rocket fuel. And his ambition is terrifying yeah. because he's able to clamber over everybody, climb up all the dead bodies and get to where... And he the, the way he manipulates Cora and Clarice, they're very simple characters, but he manipulates them by playing on their resentment and their bitterness and their envy, the fact that they're the sisters of the Earl and they should be the ones in power and why do they get nothing and the Earl gets the power and the glory of being the Earl of, of Gormenghast and shouldn't they have just as much glory? And so he, he builds up this envy within them uh, just to exploit them. Um, and just pours fuel on the fire in that way. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a strange book because um, the sort of dynamism comes from the villain in the book. Um, mm. exception of, of a couple of subplots the you know the most active character is the villain but the there's not much sense of you actually wanting you know that that day-to-day gormenghast is particularly lovely it's not vile i mean it's it's sort of functional um but it's drab and sort of mm. rapid and a bit rubbish um, well, one of the the char- one of the things that um i think it was the judge no maybe not actually maybe i'm taking her name in vain sorry your honor um that somebody said about the book is that none of the characters are likable, which is true. Maybe Fuchsia is an exception. I think exception. a lot of people have said that. Yeah, none years. of them are likable, and some of them are downright detestable. But all of them are entertaining, I think. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. I, I think, you know, even the characters who are idiots, um, like Cora and Clarice <laughs> or Nanny Slack, who's sort of, you know, ancient and probably a bit senile, you know, they're all entertaining people, and they're all enjoyable to watch because they are grotesque. And mm. sometimes it is a bit of a mad hatter's tea party in the, you know, what crazy thing is going to happen now? And because you've got Steerpikes the pushing all the characters, in some ways, um, he's a bit like, there's an Agatha Christie novel where um, a man doesn't commit murders, but encourages other people to commit murders. And in some ways, he sort of, you know, gives them the option to kind of go a little bit further and, you know, take it, take into their own sort of, you know, their own... Um, grievances into their own hands and i think at that point they are entertaining you know there are conversations bits where he's talking to the to the um to cora and clarice and they're talking about how they want many many servants and it is entertaining (laughs) and they're awful people and they're idiots and they're sort of spiteful and nasty but it's quite amusing and it is yeah and you do think what now you know to go back to a name we referenced earlier it's very blackadder yes actually Blackadder meets name in a rose or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Again, some, yeah, there's, there's the adaptation that we all want to see, isn't it? It's interesting to look at um, Titus going from this angle and this very long line of British comedy involving this person pushing up against society and they're not quite fully a hero and they're not quite fully a villain. Mm. And most of the entertainment comes from watching them 
manipulate these buffoons twerps. Yeah. Yeah. And Grotesque. then watching them overreach and collapse because deep down they're just a twerp themselves. That's, I, I can't I can't get the image out of my head of now Baldrick playing Brother Adzo of Milk. <laughs> it, it, actually you're right. I mean it is like a sort of a sort of hellish sitcom, isn't it? Yeah. Because you've got that location that no one ever really leaves for very long. And these sort of, you know, cartoonish people, um, yeah, being awful to each other. Yeah, you know, sometimes worse than others, but sometimes outright murdering each other. Yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, you can say, compare it to modern fantasy, you could say, this is almost like a Joe Abercrombie novel. Yeah, it's like Proto Grimdark, uh, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Actually, um, I was thinking about what it might have influenced earlier. I think one of the things it might have influenced were the, the early days of Warhammer. Um, and possibly, I wondered about Terry Gilliam's out you know medieval look things like jabberwocky and things like that where yes it's medieval but it's very very squalid yeah um yeah it, it's 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 it is like grimdark it's i think it's a little bit too knowing and a bit too self-aware to just be doing what joab grumby's doing but, I, I yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that it's a bit there's a sort of a meta level to to gormenghast isn't there especially when you think about where the text goes in the latter parts of the series when it gets very weird indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I think that's actually a good point, that there are sort of grimdark elements to this. Yeah. Um, so, because I am a massive nerd, um, I do have... <laughs> that's why you're here. I was going to say, fairly, yeah. fairly extensive list of who's influenced who on my computer. It's not uh, as modern yet as I'd like, but I mean, I can tell you the free authors from three two thousands who've listed um Mervyn Peak as a major influence. Oh yeah. And that's the Australian author Shane McMullen. Uh very, very well known obviously. Um there's China Mayville. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, one that makes that sense. Fit. Yeah. And there's the man I mentioned earlier, um Michael Moorcock. Yeah. He wrote a book called Gloriana, which yes. is dedicated to Peak. I didn't really get on with it, but I could really see the sort of, you know, the influence. It's, it's it all- very much Gormenghast meets Queen Elizabeth. Yes. The first. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, once you look at the um, Moorcock's books, you can see so much of this appreciation of the grotesque, the yeah. hammering at stratified systems that feel very British, the puckish ble- bleak humour. And then you can see it flow on from the things Moorcock's influenced, like Warhammer, like Abercrombie. And it's, I mean, to return to the question of, is this fantasy? It so very much fits in with a lot of fantasy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. There's not a school of Mervyn Peake. Yeah, I mean, you could trace a straight line from, say, Tad Williams or David Eddings to J.R.R. Tolkien. And I don't think there's anyone you can quite do that with as obviously in, as with Peak. But yeah, I agree with you. It it does. Yeah, drop. there are fragments everywhere. Yeah, aren't there. Yeah, uh, Gaiman's another big fan yes. of Peak as well. Yes, he's, he's been trying to adapt it. I think actually has he really? Yeah, I oh, think it's been what for 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 film or I think for TV. For uh, TV, that would be uh, he would be the right would be interesting. Film. Yeah, and again, you know, he's got that sort of quote gothic sort of feel. Um, but more to him, you know, with a wit and 
yeah yeah no i yeah. think he would big you know with his work on on stuff like sandman which we we spoke about a few weeks ago with with tade tade thompson he the game and is it's is so well attuned to those sort of underlying structures of story so you know even though gormenghast exists as a sort of castle in a sea of nothingness it's it was representative of these sort of underlying structures about how individuals and how societies can become uh, how they can fall into decay and how they're forced to change. And if you want to talk about castles in a sea of nothingness, then Dreams Castle and Sandman. Yeah. 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 No, I, th- I think you can, you know, while there aren't sort of a school of books that are, you know, about decrepit families in enormous castles, you can see an awful lot of, of Peak's influence in other, in other books, you know, um, I suppose it's what you might call a cult book, you know, in that mm. it's got that sort of intense, quirky quality that is very appealing to some. It's certainly an acquired taste, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's like if you if, you, if you read a book for likable characters and easy prose, then you won't make it past page five of <laughs> Titus. <laughs> I, I'm not sure about this this likable characters thing. I mean, I've been reading um, a set of spy novels by a guy called Mick Heron. Yeah, house. And yeah, that it. Yeah, you know, there are very, very few likable characters in that. But oh, I'm I'm, I'm all down for dislikable characters, yeah. but there's I mean, definitely a subset of of readers who who want yeah. characters to root for. Definitely, yeah. yeah. It all depends on how you define like and how you root for in a fictional mm-hmm. setting. Yeah, some of us, if presented right, will like and root mm-hmm. for absolute bastards. Well, Steer Pike is set up that way. Yep. He's, he's set um, up as somebody you want to root for because he's escaped from the, the, this horrific kitchen run yep. by Abiathar Swelter, which is, you know, murderous and disgusting. And he manages to escape. And you think, oh, yeah, good for you. And then Flay, this, this sort of spiderish, insectoid uh, master at arms for the castle, um, captures him and. Uh, Steer Pike gets away from him, and you think, "All oh, right, okay, somebody's here's somebody to root for. Here's somebody to hang your hat on." And he turns out to be worse than any of them. Yeah, yeah. And Flay actually turns out to be a better man than you would think. Um, yeah, yeah. Actually, one book which I have absolutely no evidence is influenced by Gormenghast, but which reminds me in parts quite strongly of it um, is Dune by Frank Herbert, with uh, mm. because. Dune has got, um, it, at least near you know, the first book, um, has got House Atreides, which is this you know, noble house with its strange advisors. And partly it's you know, the outfits and the designs that you see um, in films and adaptations. But there's a sort of grotesque quality to those, I think, um, to people like Thufir Hawat and Gurney Halleck and those sort of characters. They're not as grotesque, but they're pretty bizarre people. Um and there's, there's a character later on, I think, in June, the Emperor's Ambassador, uh, Fenring, I think he's called, who reminds me strongly of Prune Squalor, actually, um, who has mm. a very peculiar way of speaking and so on. And I suppose it's because of that noble house with a sort of leader and his kind of bizarre assistance. But yeah, June's always reminded me of that and quite a dark tone, I suppose. Well, we better not drop down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in fact, it's probably a good place to stop, actually. Yeah. And that's 
that's been a really good conversation yeah. about Gorman Glass. Well, it's been really enjoyable. I really enjoyed it. I mean, I would, I would say, you know, I think it's a great book. It's a very strange one, but yeah, I think it deserves being a classic. Um, yeah, I think it, it's one of the, it did take me a good week of thinking about it after I'd finished it to, to put all the pieces together because there are parts of it which are a bit of a slog. Let's, yes, definitely. Let's be fair. That's, that's even if you love the book, I think that's a reasonable conclusion. Uh, the, the huge walls of text that Peak throws at the reader with, you know, sometimes you need a thesaurus to get through it. It's, um, it's hard work, but when you step back and you, and you, and you can see the thing in the hole in the round, you can appreciate what Peak was trying to do and what he managed to do. Okay, we'll take a break there. Thanks, Toby. We'll uh, see you a little bit later on in the show. See you in a bit. F. Milcott. Yes? I, uh, I, uh, I don't think I can do it anymore. Do what? Go on. Say it, bungalow. The listeners need to hear this. Well, well, okay. I, uh, I, uh... I can't, I can't go up being a member of the Martian Space Force anymore. And why is that? Well, you know, we, we never do anything. We make pointless reports from Earth, try and fail, kill Jupiterians. I freaking hate the Jupiterians. It just seems so pointless. Pushing on Mars is just, oh, it's freaking dumb. Wash your mondogular flamp out with soap. You went too far with that one. And anyways, you're... I can't do it anymore. This enfranchised McCaitment with all things Martian is the very reason I brought you Gromgenhas Castle. Why? I mean, this place, it's giving me the creeps. Did you see the state of the humans in this place? With their crazy names? I mean, who in their right mind would call their kids Swelter or Flay? I mean, it sounds like what you do to tenderize an old thingum snake, man. Plus, they smell, they're ugly, prone to violence, irrational, and, you know, they smell. You said smell already. And who said anything about these people being humans? Question, will you? I am going to give you the inspiration and motivation you need to overcome your crisis of conscience and carry on being a lieutenant in the Martian Space Force. And by that, I mean... Look around you. This place has been the hereditary home of the grown family for centuries. And not a single room has been altered in that time. So all is not as it seems, if you follow. No, I have no idea. Not a freaking clue. I'm talking about the fact that not a single thing has been updated for centuries. These people are obviously in the Martian Space Force. And look how they are living. This could be due in just a few short Centuries. Well, how is that supposed to help? I mean, this place, this place is a freaking dump, man. I mean, I'd rather hack off my left ventricle than become like one of them. Right. Okay, then. I'm going to try a different tactic. Psychology obviously isn't working. I'm not sure why. It might be because you're too stupid. Anyways, I'm going to try a different motivational tactic. Do you know what this is? Yeah, it's a uh, class one heat ray. And what happens when someone is hit with a heat ray? They experience searing pain for a brief moment and then die. Well, if you ever threaten to stop being a lieutenant in the Martian Space Force, again, I'm gonna hit you with a heat ray. Is that clearer? Well, I mean, 
I suppose it does simplify things a bit. Of course it does. Now, go back to doing whatever it is you do between episodes. The listeners want to hear from the judge. Hello. Welcome again to The Judge's Corner with me, Damaris Brown. If you were following the Chronicles podcast last year, you'll know that after the death of Queen Elizabeth in September, I did a talk on the law regarding the sovereign in the United Kingdom. With the coronation of King Charles on 6th May, I thought I'd return to the monarchy. So if you didn't catch my earlier talk, you might want to listen to it now, as it gives a general background which might be useful. As I discussed in that earlier talk, nowadays the crown passes immediately upon the death of the sovereign. But in England until the 13th century, the new monarch's reign only began at his coronation. Until then, he was known as Dominus Anglorum, Lord of the English. Emphatically not Rex Anglorum, not the king. If you know about the 12th century civil war called the Anarchy, or you've read Ellis Peter's Cadval novels, you may remember that Empress Matilda was known to her supporters as Lady of the English, the title given to a pre-coronation queen, only she, of course, never progressed further. Because the claimant to the throne only became monarch upon receiving the unction at the coronation, that is, being anointed with the holy oil, there could be weeks or months of an interregnum in which no one could legitimately exercise royal authority, and this at a time when the crown wasn't today's constitutional monarchy, but held real power. So, since its origins lie in this conferring of formal legal authority upon the sovereign, one might therefore think the coronation right is itself a matter of law and legal precedent. But in fact, that's not the case. Practically everything about the present day ceremony is simply a matter of tradition, though one that has been moulded and amended over the centuries. We no longer have the king's champion in full armour riding on horseback into a coronation banquet and throwing down his gauntlet, for instance. Indeed, it isn't even a legal requirement that there be a coronation. Edward VIII, who abdicated in 1936 in order to marry Wallace Simpson, was never crowned, yet he legitimately undertook what are known as royal functions during his 325-day reign, most notably in giving royal assent to proposed laws. The only other acknowledged and accepted monarch never to be crowned, despite inheriting the throne, so by that definition excluding both Empress Matilda and Lady Jane Grey, was his namesake, Edward V, one of the princes in the Tower, whose coronation was planned, but he was then declared illegitimate and was most likely murdered along with his brother, after their uncle, Richard of Gloucester, seized the throne. Philip of Spain, king by virtue of his marriage to Mary Tudor, also doesn't appear to have had a coronation, but the Act of Parliament which granted him the title also ensured Mary herself retained all real authority and power, and at her death his reign ended abruptly. As an aside, there is actually one man crowned king in England whose name never appears in a list of reigning monarchs. Henry II's eldest son, or rather the eldest to survive childhood, also called Henry, actually had two coronations, something that wasn't unusual with later monarchs by way of restatements of fealty and overlordship. 
though I'm not sure if he was formally anointed at either. He was known as Henry the Young King to distinguish him from his father, but in his case the coronation conferred no power, only confirmed him as heir and successor, though in the event he never came to the throne as he died young. The regalia involved in British coronations is deeply symbolic, as is the ceremony itself, the only coronation rite still held in Europe. But since there are no legal ramifications surrounding them, I'll forbear from talking about the five ceremonial swords paraded in the coronation. The swords of state, temporal justice, spiritual justice, mercy, and the wonderfully named sword of offering, which symbolises the crown protecting good and punishing evil, and which is given to the altar, but then bought back for a hundred shillings. Not to mention the mace, spurs, ampulla, orb, scepter, armils, King Edward's staff, and the spoon dating from the 12th century, original purpose unknown, and one of the few survivors of Cromwell's wholesale melting down and recycling of the regalia after Charles I was beheaded. But if you're as intrigued by these things as I am, the Tower of London, where they're housed when they're not being flaunted in Westminster Abbey, has a website with details of some of them. But while they may have no legal importance, there is one aspect of the coronation which is required by law, the coronation oath. The oath is, in effect, a compact between the monarch and his or her people, and in England its earliest form is in the coronation service devised by St Dunstan for the Anglo-Saxon King Edgar in 973. The king had to promise three things. The church and the people would hold true peace under his rule, he would forbid acts of robbery and iniquity, and he would uphold justice and mercy in all judgments. That is, he had to maintain peace, order and the rule of law. But note that as far as peace is concerned, the church gets specific mention. The king was required to protect it and its liberties, an unsurprising clause when the church is intent on maintaining its power against secular authority. The exact form of the oath changed over the next several centuries, not least as a result of the steadily increasing role of the king's advisers in parliament and the changing relationship of the crown to its subjects. So while, for instance, in 1170, Henry the young king promised to uphold the ancient customs of the realm, in 1308, Edward II had to swear to observe the future laws made by the community of the realm. A further change was made following the union of the crowns, when James VI of Scotland inherited the English throne, not least that the Stuart kings were required to have separate coronations in their two realms with separate oaths. Issues with Charles I as to the interpretation of his Scottish oath as it related to the Presbyterian religion led to Charles II being required to agree to the terms of that oath before even being allowed to enter Scotland and act as king. That done, he was crowned there in 1651, some nine years before his restoration in England, the last coronation to take place on Scottish soil, though not the last upon or above Scottish rock, thanks to the stone of Schoon in the coronation chair at Westminster Abbey. The issue of religion was the cause of the most important change to the coronation oath, when the Catholic James VII and II was effectively deposed 
and his daughter Mary and her husband William of Orange, staunch Protestants, were given the thrones of the two kingdoms. But before they were crowned, the English Parliament brought in the Coronation Oath Act of 1688, the preamble of which seems to my eyes somewhat disingenuous. Whereas, by the law and ancient usage of this realm, the kings and queens thereof have taken a solemn oath upon the evangelists at their respective coronations to maintain the statutes, laws and customs of the said realm and all the people and inhabitants thereof in their spiritual and civil rights and properties. But forasmuch as the oath itself on such occasion administered hath hereto before been framed in doubtful words and expressions with relation to ancient laws and constitutions at this time unknown. Notwithstanding that effective concern over doubtful words and expressions, the real intent behind the statute was to ensure there would be no repetition of the problems experienced with the Stuart kings. The monarch's power was to be curtailed and subject to parliamentary will, and there would be no further attempt to turn the country Catholic. Accordingly, they were to have questions put to them by the leading cleric at the coronation, preferably the Archbishop of Canterbury, and were to answer as laid down in the act. The Archbishop or Bishop shall say, Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the people of this Kingdom of England and the dominions thereto belonging, according to the statutes in Parliament agreed on and the laws and customs of the same? The King and Queen shall say, I solemnly promise so to do. Archbishop or Bishop, will you to your power cause law and justice in mercy to be executed in all your judgments? King and Queen, I will. Archbishop or Bishop, will you to the utmost of your power maintain the laws of God, the true profession of the gospel and the Protestant reformed religion established by law? And will you preserve unto the bishops and clergy of this realm and to the churches committed to their charge all such rights and privileges as by law do or shall appertain unto them or any of them? King and Queen, all this I promise to do. After this, the king and queen laying his and her hand upon the Holy Gospel shall say, These things which I have herebefore promised, I will perform and keep, so help me God. The preamble to the Act also made it clear that Parliament intended not merely to circumscribe the powers of William and Mary themselves, but to ensure all future monarchs were bound, stating that one uniform oath may be in all times to come taken by the kings and queens of this realm and to them respectively administered at the times of their and every of their coronation and it remains in force to this day in strict terms any deviation from the original wording invalidates the oath which since it's a legal requirement at the coronation must in turn cast doubt on the legitimacy of, of the monarch in practice, however, the actual wording has changed considerably over the last 300 years, not least because of the change in the constituent parts of the monarch's realms. After 1707, it was no longer the Kingdom of England, for instance, but of Great Britain, and then later the United Kingdom. The gaining of Commonwealth realms such as Canada and Australia has led to their inclusion. The loss of countries such as India gaining independence has led to their removal. 
all these being arguably implicitly allowed under other statutes. Any more wide-reaching alterations, though, can only happen by a further Act of Parliament. The monarch can't tinker with the oath on his own. Just as the coronation oath ensured the continued establishment of the Church of England, under the terms of the 1688 Bill of Rights and the Act of Settlement of 1700, William and Mary and their successors were required by law formally to declare their adherence to the Protestant religion. As amended by the 1910 Accession Declaration Act, that declaration, which is to be made, subscribed and audibly repeated by the Sovereign, remains a legal requirement at the coronation unless the declaration has already been made at an earlier state opening of Parliament, with the monarch saying, I do solemnly and sincerely in the presence of God profess, testify and declare that I am a faithful Protestant and that I will, according to the true intent of the enactments which secure the Protestant succession to the throne of my realm, uphold and maintain the said enactments to the best of my powers according to law. The Scots, incidentally, having been caught out by Charles I, don't wait for the coronation for confirmation of their religious freedoms, and the Scottish oath, in which the monarch must promise to inviolably maintain and preserve the settlement of the true Protestant religion, together with the government, worship, discipline, rights and privileges of the Church of Scotland, is sworn at every accession, binding the sovereign immediately and King Charles swore that oath at his accession council on 10th September last year. It may be he was cognizant of the diversity of religious practice in Scotland nowadays, especially bearing in mind his previously stated wish to be defender of faith in general, not of the faith, since before swearing he emphasised that I understand that the law requires that I should, at my accession to the crown, take and subscribe the oath relating to the security of the Church of Scotland. But at least, unlike William and Mary in 1689, he wasn't required to promise, and we shall be careful to root out all heretics and enemies to the true worship of God that shall be convicted by the true Kirk of God of the aforesaid crimes out of our lands and empire of Scotland. Something which apparently gave them pause, since before accepting the terms of the oath, they checked they weren't themselves considered heretics by the Kirk, not being Presbyterian. Just as these oaths have changed in the past, they, and the coronation rite itself, will continue to change and evolve in the future, to take account of religious and cultural developments and the will of the people as expressed through Parliament. For the moment, though, we have a ceremony that is a mix of modernity and ancient ritual, pageantry and faith, the law and tradition, symbolism, homage and fealty, sumptuous costumes and glittering jewels. Let's make the most of it. The theme of the March 75 word challenge was second chances and the genre was science fiction fantasy. The winner was Beanie Boy himself who is away this month so I'll be reading his winning entry, The Death of Ageing. The Death of Ageing by Christopher Bean When was he? Immortality, like immolation, consumes you. 
Science doesn't understand that aging eventually kills itself. Kills us. The poison chalice of immortality taught much. He learned even the toughest cliff-bound olive trees die. Worse though, aging continues for immortals. He owns no mirrors, no hairbrush, no camera. As he witnesses seedlings turn into shaggy ewes and then die, he inches through time, a crepe-boned mummification of man, wishing he'd said no, and wonders about immolation. Hi, welcome back to the show. We're here with Toby Frost. We've been discussing Gormenghast and Titus alone in the first hour of the show, but now we're going to talk a little bit more about Toby's own work. Uh, we touched on a couple of bits earlier on in dispatches. Um, for example, we mentioned Warhammer 40,000, and I think that's as good a place uh, to start as any. So, Toby, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a writer for hire. Yeah. Uh, it's not something that we've talked about before, and it seems like quite an interesting gig. Um, so if you could tell us like, how that comes about, is that something that John, John Gerald, uh, introduced for you? Did he help it, or is that something that came off your own bat? It actually came out of um, going to a convention um, a long time ago, a science fiction convention, where I'd basically gone with the Space Captain Smith books, which some about half, I think it was about three by that point. And uh, I got talking to a guy called James Swallow, who was uh, one of Games Workshop's Black Library's writers. And uh, he wrote stories about space marines, as among other things. And he suggested I should get in touch with them and you know see if they're interested, um, which I did. Um, the way they did it was to give me a short story to write, uh, which I did. And then off the back of that, they said, do you want to write a novel? I was like, yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's as easy as that. (laughs) Was that, it was pretty much that, um, there was a choice, I think, if I remember rightly of writing about entirely new characters, um, or writing about a character who was already established in the game world, but had never had any fiction written about him, never had any books written. This character, uh, Colonel Strachan. And I went with Strachan because I thought, well, he's already established, you know, something we, he's already there. Um, you're not kind of starting from scratch, but you've got a lot of room to go. It, it was very interesting to do. Um, I think the first and perhaps hardest lesson you learn when you're writing in someone else's setting is you're not going to be the guy who changes the setting drastically. Um, you know, if all space marines are brave, you are not going to be the guy who writes the book about the cowardly space marine. You know, you are there to produce something that's good, and that is important. You know, you're not doing rubbish, but um, you're also there to produce something which is in keeping with what's gone before. So it's you. It's a bit like there's you know, I don't know, five apples on the shelf, and you're kind of producing a sixth apple. Or something like that. Um, yeah. That's a really bad analogy. But yeah, you you are not Because <laughs> that's how apples are made. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. By writers. <laughs> writing about apples. Um, I, yeah, I know. For, for a writer, that was a rubbish analogy. Um, but you're, yeah, you're not going to be the one who breaks the system. And what that means is that you are working within the parameters of their world. And you can bring something new to it, which is your own slant on it. Um, but you're not going to be able to reinvent it, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, yeah, 
What so I, is there so is there a how much so when you go into this, how much uh, previous knowledge of the world of the universe do you need to go in with? So stuff that you knew from gaming, because I know you're you're a yeah. bit of a tabletop gamer as well, aren't yeah. you? So I'm presuming you play Warhammer and 40k yeah. and D and D and all that stuff. So how much do you go in with that? You know, pre-armed with that knowledge, and how much do you sort of learn as you go and and blag and research like we like we do when we're writing? You know, most of the time, um, bit of both. Um, I think it would probably help to be, you know, an up-to-date player, which I wasn't actually. I wasn't. I hadn't done it for a couple of years. Um, Warhammer Forty Thousand. So I kind of knew a bit about the setting, but I didn't quite know the tone of what they wanted, um, because I was used to an older feel, which was more like 2000 AD, the comic, and was more sort of tongue-in-cheek and sillier and a bit more, you know, sort of had some more in-jokes. And uh, they didn't really want that. They wanted a more serious kind of science fiction action novel, which was fine, but I had to, had to get used to. Um, I think the tone is actually quite an important thing to get what they want, not just in terms of events, but the feel that the book's got to have. Um, and I remember a conversation with um, one of their editors where he sort of said, well, how do you think the average person in, in you know the 40K world is? And I sort of said, well, are they a bit like a sort of peasant in Stalinist Russia? And he went, yeah, let's, yeah that's not bad. You know, yeah. Let's go with that. Um, so, yeah, there, there's that kind of feeling. Um, it's a matter of kind of getting accustomed to that tone sort of setting what you can get away with and what you can't. Um, so there's there's a moment in Strachan um, where there's a guy piloting a sort of um, uh, what do you call him sort of scout walker type machine you know a sort of bipod robot and he's smoking a cigarette and he chucks the butt out the window and the machine goes and stumps its foot and crushes the butt out and when it came around to editing I said that's sort of on the verge of too silly but it's cool so we're going to keep it in <laughs> and yeah it's that kind of thing there is a sort of rule of cool that applies here you know is it sufficiently awesome because when you look at the warhammer world again it actually it's a bit like what we're saying about gormagas there are just logic gaps you know i remember saying sort of um what the guns sound like then and there was a sort of you know moment of quiet where we had to look it up because they're like bolt they're things like bolt pistols aren't they which right. implies a sort of massive lumps of metal being yeah. fired from an oversized pistol so yeah. what, you know, what is that is it like a cannon yeah well it, it's very much rule of cool uh, you know um, and yeah. <laughs> once you start looking at the internal logic i mean i remember saying because i was writing about their sort of the imperial guard the sort of uh, rank and file infantry conscripts i remember saying well what do they get paid and there was a pause, you know, and we all had to think about this. So what do they get paid in? And it's like, well, if they get paid, are they slaves? And it's like, well, no, not really. You know, and of course, that doesn't come up when you're moving small people around on a tabletop and you're simulating, you know, 20 minutes of gunfire. Um, so, yeah, it's quite fun, but also a bit of a challenge to kind of flesh out the whole setting. Um, I think with a lot of, you know, science fiction and fantasy settings, if you start looking into the background logic hard enough, you start finding, you know, mistakes or, or gaps. Yeah, well, I, I think, you, yeah, that's that's probably the case in all fiction, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. it's, 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 at the end of the day, still just supposed to be a representation. Yeah. yeah. And as long as the yeah. very, very similitude is, is adequate, yeah. then the rest can hang off that. The trick yeah. is making sure the audience is enjoying themselves enough that they don't want to ask those questions to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's exactly right. And in a book, you know, what you're doing is you're putting excitement in front of the you know in front of the reader, you're throwing exciting things. And so, yeah, what you 
one thing I did find was I'm not going to be able to stop and write a philosophical novel. You know, this is, they may be wearing robes, but this is not Name of the Rose. You know, they are going to have a gunfight at some point. And that's fine as well. You just, you have to reconcile yourself to that. And I don't think that means that you're going to write a second rate or a bad book at all. I think there are people who would regard every bit of tie-in fiction, every bit of fiction for hire as bad. Uh, I don't think that's fair. I think what you're going to get is you're going to get entertaining fiction and you're going to get entertaining fiction which entertains in a certain way because that's what you expect from the story. You know, you're not going to read a Warhammer book and find a really good romance novel in there, but you might well find a really good action novel in there and that's fine, you know. I guess the reader of... of of a Warhammer I'm not sure. novel. You're not thoughtful there. May, may be a really good robot. Well, yeah, mate, Pete's racking his brains in, <laughs> yeah. in the background there. But what, so while he's racking his brains, I'll come in with uh, the, the average reader, I suppose, of a 40K novel, and I've not read any, um, I suppose approaches the work with a certain amount of good faith because it's got that, it's got the seal on it. It's an official product. So there's going, there's going to be, they, they'll enter into the bargain with a good spirit. Um, so you've got to do the same thing, you know, yeah. prof- prof- you know, with your professional hat on as a professional writer, you've got to enter into that engagement in the right spirit. Yeah, I think as a writer, it was actually really useful in terms of a lesson in professionalism, actually, because you're submitting stuff that, that is of a certain type. You're submitting it uh, within a fixed setting. Uh, you're doing it to deadlines, you know, um, and you're, you're dealing with people who ultimately own this stuff more than you do. You know, yeah, absolutely, and that, I suppose that goes for the fan base as well. Doesn't yeah, it? yeah, and that's great. You know, it, it, it for actually being a writer, these are really useful skills to develop, and mm. it's sometimes writing is not just like this sort of seancey sort of just sitting there and waiting for inspiration to descend on you. Sometimes it is about writing, you know, two deadlines or writing things that you're not, you know. Uh, entirely sure about and have to research and things like that so yeah it's it was really good as an experience of just sort of pragmatism this this idea of of the of the reader engaging because it's a it's a professional outfit and so as the writer you've like you say you've got to be a professional in the way that you approach the work the publishers are a highly professional outfit and they've got to produce something that they know is going to fly for their audience I'm wondering because there's this sort of setup, and this this is a, a, a niche product. Let's be let's be fair. I, I I used to play 40k and I loved it, but it is a niche market. Absolutely. And I wonder how much that sort of fan service, because it is fan service, is is extrapolated into the wider genre market where you have things like, um, well, let's go there, latter day Star Wars movies, which some people love them. Bean, it, he will sing from the from the hills about all of the the, the latter day Star Wars films. Yeah. Other people will not. Yeah. I, I I'm sort of in the middle. I don't really mind either way because I'm not a super fan. But there's this element of fan service that creeps into these conversations. Yeah. And how much do you do you deliver for the fans, and how much do you um, bring something new into the equation? Now, I, th- this is kind of different. It's not Star Wars. It's not no. mass market appeal it's niche so you can say we can stick with fan service but then 
in order to 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 maintain its its freshness and maintain its its relevance to its audience does it have to change things or is or do you think no you just stick to the script or as a writer is that just completely out, out of scope for you you just do what you're told you can bring something to it um and you've i I think if you went and you looked at the sum total of Black Library novels, you would find that there are certain authors who do certain things and that there are people who will go to a book about, I don't know, Space Marines or something, who would not be interested in the book about I don't know, some other aspect of the setting mm-hmm. um, and would expect something you know, maybe more sort of straight-up action or maybe more intrigue or something like that. Um, so, yeah, you can do something. When, um, when Stratton came out... Um, Games Workshop has this sort of um, in-house work, a magazine about its products called White Dwarf. Which oh, yeah, I remember White Dwarf, yeah. And it was mentioned in White Dwarf as one of the things that have come out this month. And I was interested to see that they said that it, it has a, you know, Strachan has a, a, a sort of um, streak of black humour through it. And I think it does. And I think that's something I was able to bring to it. Um, which might be because I'd been writing comedy science fiction before, or might be because I was used to an earlier version of, of the game where there was more black humour in the writing. So, yeah, you can bring something new to it like that. Um, of course, when you get into things that have got a big fandom, you've always got the possibility of fans being un- upset by what's been made. Um, <clears throat> I've never had anything like that. Um, I think, actually, the people who are reading them are pretty reasonable guys and aren't going to kick off just because it isn't what they wanted there again you know as we're saying if you provide a lot of entertainment and it's good entertainment then i think people are generally pretty happy star wars is an interesting one i think because the people who write who are in charge of it um are obviously rather shrewd about what they make um i was watching one of their more recent programs uh, Andor, um a couple of months yes ago, and i was thinking you know, a small child will get almost nothing out of this, you know. Yeah. It's slow and it's complex and it's multi-layer, you know. Well, it's a spy thriller, essentially, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's an espionage yeah. thriller. Yeah. It's brilliant, by the way. Yeah, I really and liked it. But I thought, it's fabulous. Yeah, this is closer to a John le Carre story or a French resistance story or something like that than it is to a sort of, you know, straight up, um, you know, kind of cartoony adventure story. And they're obviously wise enough to know that, you know, different audiences will want different things. It's interesting, I think, also that both Warhammer and Star Wars have got a retro audience as well. Um, that they've got older people who were into this when they were kids. Yeah. Now I've got the age and time and money to actually go back to it and enjoy it in a slightly more, maybe more sophisticated, maybe more sort of um, tongue in cheek kind of way. I don't know what the phrase yeah. would be. Yeah. I mean, I think if we're talking about what audiences want for works like this, I mean, don't forget. Like- do want something new. One of the big criticisms of the new Star Wars trilogy was it's just the old ones repackaged. And um, with Warhammer 40k, uh, this is more of a rules criticism than a fiction criticism. I'm not deeply plugged into Black Library fandom. But I remember every time they'd come out with a new Space Marine supplement and people would go, oh, gods, here we go again. Yeah. You can't just have things in stasis uh, to go back to Gormenghast. If yeah. something's ossified, people are going to want to see it pushed out. And I think that, to me, seems to be one of the interesting balances in um, doing that sort of fleshing out a universe. But you have to refresh things 
enough, but not too much. Yeah, I guess. Same but different. Yeah, there's, um, and that's a very hard thing to deliver. I think. Um, I think you do run the risk. I think any series runs the risk of delivering the same but worse. Um, yes. You know, the same but weaker. Um, and I think that's a real problem with any sequence that isn't sort of injecting itself with new blood, whether that's introducing new characters, new settings, new stories, new writers, you know. But you do run the risk, and I think Andor's quite a good example of this, that you can go as far as the setting or the tone or whatever will allow you, and then you're any further and you're doing something which is so different to the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they balanced it very well, I think, in Andor. Yeah. Yeah. And and the Mandalorian as well, which is different. It's lighter in tone. It's, yeah. it's got that you know, it's got spaghetti western vibes. My kids, my my two girls, really like the Mandalorian for oh, obvious yeah, reasons. That's great, yeah. You know, yeah. It's got it's got cutesy stuff as well as the yeah. So it's 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 more traditional sort of Star Wars age target audience. Uh, but yeah, if I showed my 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 older daughter Ava, she's aware of Andor. She said, "Oh yeah, I've seen it advertised everywhere, but it looks a bit." boring <laughs> yeah yeah you probably would find but, it boring yeah. but um to pivot a little on the idea of diminishing returns i remember a conversation we had about a couple of months ago um briefly talking about how eventually an author who does the same sort of thing starts boring a lot of their audience and i remember you saying that um you'd had that fear of captain smith yeah absolutely yeah mm-hmm. um i i i think the worry is that I mean, the literal worry in some ways is that you actually literally repeat the same jokes. And yeah. there did come a moment, uh, I think it was the end of the fifth one, where I thought, I cannot think of a joke about lemmings that I haven't done, you know, because there's a lemming species. And I thought, I've done everything. I've done hibernation. I've done cheek pouches. I've done jumping off cliffs. I've done everything I can think of about a lemming-derived culture. You know, there are no more gags here. And this has been mined. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um and there was, there was a worry that you simply run out of jokes. Uh, yeah. yeah. That, that, that was what I was going to ask next. Like, was there a moment when you're like, this, I can begin to see the downhill descent right now? I, yeah, actually, if I'm going to be honest about it, yeah. Um, I got, there's a natural arc, especially in the, I wrote six Space Captain Smith books, which is basically two trilogies um, and some short stories. And, that's a good number. There's also the fact that there's uh, a galactic war on and the galactic war pretty much ends with the capture of the arch villain at the end of the sixth mm-hmm. book. So, yeah, there's a good, uh, yeah, that there, there, there are good reasons to pause there. It, I'm certainly not permanently putting on the brakes because there's a, a lot of stuff I go back to and I have gone back to it in short stories since then. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a worry that you end up just doing the same thing but weaker and weaker and weaker uh, i think when you get to that point that's the time to stop you know when you and basically leave on a high you know yeah um but yeah yeah absolutely I, I can certainly think of comedies where people say oh it's a great comedy but don't watch the last season and the one before that's oh, a bit weak. and then yeah. Gets, yeah and you can think yeah how much of this is actually good you know <laughs> i mean honestly i feel like with most comedies comedies where people say no it stays strong from start to finish are almost the exception not the rule yeah absolutely yeah yeah i think some of the best comedies 
you forget how few episodes there are. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very British phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah. If you think of a TV sitcom, that's very British. You do two two series, maybe a special, and then boom, you're done. And that's the best comedy. 18 episodes, 12 episodes, or something. Yeah. Mm. It's almost nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great because it means that you're you're hitting it and you never, you know, you never tire the audience. You can get to the point where, you know, there are things that the audience wants to read and that's great. You know, they were like, oh, it's this guy. I love this guy. He's really entertaining. That's great. And if that guy is, his appearance is reliant on a certain type of comedy or a certain sort of um, a background joke, you know, I mean, I've got a character in the Space Captain Smith book, Sir the Slayer, who is a parody of every honourable warrior alien in science fiction, of which there were quite a few. And he always does honourable warrior alien things. But that's his character, but the, the actual jokes, the individual jokes, are different because you know, yeah, you can't, yeah, they're all, but they all derive from that same source, and I think that's quite nice when people go, oh, great, you know, he so the slayers appeared, that means something funny will happen, but that does rely on you being able to keep coming out with entertaining new jokes, you know, yeah. And to um, pivot back to a moment to gaming, and I mm. get a feeling that the slayer might be an answer to my question. Um, are there any particular thoughts on genre that you have like gained from being a tabletop gamer or computer gamer? Any game, really? Um, that's a really interesting one. I do think that books are still the cutting edge often of, not always, but often of science fiction and fantasy. Um, you know, it's like the way that um, something like The Matrix, you know, uses a lot of ideas that Philip K. Dick was exploring, you know, 30 years before it came out. Um, and of course, the different mediums. So, you know, you've got, I think it's interesting that you see something like, I don't know, um, a game like The Last of Us, which has, to me, that as a reader, I've read stories like that pretty often. And I do think... Well, it's very similar to The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, I think there are nods to The Road. And you could probably take it all the way back to Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham. Yeah. Because apocalypse stories are kind of about the moral decisions that happen when everything falls apart. Um, but it's interesting to see that level of sort of novel length, char- novel level characterization put into a computer game. Uh, one interesting thing about the game of um, of The Last of Us is that every so often uh, little symbols appear over characters' heads, which mean an optional conversation can be had. And you don't get anything from the conversation except the characters talking. You know, and they will just be, you know, computer game people just standing there and chatting. And it's interesting. It's, it's, yeah, it's just, add, it just, but it adds to the character, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's doing something adds more. To the world. Things. Yeah. It's kind of giving you something which isn't just killing stuff on a screen. Um, so, yeah, um, I still think um, that there are definitely things that writing does a lot better and is much better suited for. And I think some of those kind of weird, experimental, cutting-edge things are best done on paper, to be honest, especially when there's... It's, it's, we've had this conversation on the podcast before about how about the conflict between publishing as as a commercial industry which has to make money and and this is kind of spinning on the same point about um serving up the sort of books that for example black library wants to put out for its fan base a a publishing house wants to be able to service the market but it's also 
you know, it's, it's that balance between highly conservative, and I mean conservative not politically, but commercially, you know, it's got its commercial interests yeah. and to serve and economically, it's got to be able to make money. Yeah. And the artistic stuff, on the other hand, yeah. it's got to be able to sort of generate, must generate new ideas. It has yeah. to be open to new ideas. And, and there's a constant balance there. Um, I would, there's probably a strong sense in the last probably 10 or 15 years that publishing has become a little bit too conservative again not politically but with with respect to pushing out stuff that is not quite as groundbreaking and not yeah. as adventurous yeah. Yeah. I think as, on, as it as it was certainly certainly in the 20th 20th century yeah oh, on the um on the forum we, we we see quite a lot of discussions about hard science fiction against um sort of soft science fiction i think i'm increasingly starting to think that the division is between science fiction as uh, sort of literature of ideas and uh, science fiction as a sort of literature of invent of adventure. Yeah. yeah. And mm. sometimes, and there's nothing inherently wrong with this because it's a lot of what I write is this, you get an adventure story that is moved into science fiction terms. You know, um, we we don't see uh, very many war stories like, say, Where Eagles Dare, you know, a story where you just kill thousands of, of baddies, you know, and blow stuff up and have exciting adventures these days in the cinema. But we do see films like, say, Starship Troopers, which are doing something quite similar in science fiction terms, or Aliens, perhaps. Yeah, well, even that, I mean, they're, that's, they're, they're not new films. No, I know those are books that, you, no. that but, you're talking um, about there. no. Yeah, I see your point about that. There's a sort of conservatism of that, and that conservatism sometimes is well, often is about that adventure rather than ideas. Mm. Um, and yeah, maybe we need to return to that. Yeah, I, I suppose ideally you combine the both. Yeah, is the answer. Well, yeah, I, I you same but different. It's the same thing. Mm. So, but I, I just. I guess the trend at the moment is for putting a fresh twist on old ideas rather than something that's radical. And sometimes a rat you can you know you can go too radical and and it and you can say maybe it doesn't work at all or it's or it's too weird. So we when we talked about House of Leaves, that certainly came up that it was just it was too weird. But it's but it found an audience and it's destined to just become a cult classic. Yeah. Or maybe not even a classic, but a cult book. Yeah. Whereas these days there's there's a lot of very direct retellings. I mean Everything, to some degree, is a twist on what's happened before. It's about the amount of twist and the amount of yeah. distance. Yeah, I mean, take something like the cult film The Warriors, which is actually based on ancient Greek history and literature. Yeah. That is such a big twist that you're pretty much not going to know that unless you're very well educated or have just been on IMDb trivia. Um <laughs> But when you see things that are marketed as a retelling so of Rapunzel, a retelling of um, this fairy tale, then you know you're in a very close level of um, treading in footsteps and then you get Star Wars, you get all the Marvel remakes and it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it's difficult for something that's entirely new, not linked to an existing ip um and is in full of new ideas yeah and what constitutes new ideas i think changes as well um yeah maybe i don't know 50 years ago or something that 
quite sort of hard science fiction idea of new tech was was very interest was more interesting perhaps than it is now you know but then you get something like um you know the sort of cyberpunk novels which are crossing um science fiction with with noir stories yeah yeah and that was a very new idea there and that's that's yes there's some tech there but it's also a style you know it's an approach so yeah, it's an atmosphere yeah, yeah what constitutes new i think changes from time time to time um so yeah yeah it's that continual search for sort of freshness which maybe it gets harder and harder i don't think it's a case of all the good stories being told i think it no no not, certainly not i think there's a there must be untold amounts of uh, of great stories out there yeah. that haven't found an audience yet yeah. i just wonder what's the what's the the appetite for certainly the big publishing houses to take risks i really don't in know. a difficult yeah. market i really don't know but no, actually, we'll, we'll, we'll work. And we'll, we've got um, we've got um, some publishers coming up in future episodes. Cool. So this is something that we'll have to raise with them and see what the see what the state of the market is. So um, let's let's move on. In fact, let's move back because um, I want to go back to the gaming again All right. and just wonder how much what how much uh, the um, your experience with gaming tabletop mm-hmm. how, and what how does that influence your writing? Um, I think. In a, in a direct way, not much. Uh, but I think there's a sort of appeal um, of science, that science fiction fantasy has uh, um, to me, which is all about moving into a different world. And it's it's a bit like I was mentioning those Alan Lee pictures earlier, that they're extremely evocative. And it's not just what's being depicted, but how it's being depicted. It's, it's an atmosphere thing. And I can remember um, maybe when I was, I don't know, 10, 15 or something, computers starting to get better and things like the Amiga coming out, which now look very primitive. But back then, I would just sort of gawp at other at friends' computers when they were running. I just think, this is absolutely incredible. And you'd see some little man running along the screen. And in the background, there were some mountains or a picture of a castle thing. And my brain would always think, well, what's it like on those mountains? You know, what's it, what would it be like to go there? So there's an element of exploring, I think, um, as well as just the challenge of winning, which I'm not actually that as interested in. But I think there's an element of exploring that comes from gaming. And some of um, the board gaming, tabletop gaming, that can come from playing those games, but it can also come from making the, the models for them, you know, converting them, which is something I'm very into, making new models out of old ones, paint schemes, all that kind of stuff. There's um, a creativity that comes from this. Um, the, you know, even down to sort of um, things like Dungeons and Dragons, where people have to create a character. You know, they're making up a character who who is going to be almost the lead character of a novel. You know, but they're never going to write that novel if that makes any sense. Mostly, yeah. Um, so, would you say this this love of exploration can be? I mean, I could see how it can be seen in Captain Smith quite easily. Um, would you say that goes through all your novels, or would you say like have your interest maybe changed a little i think the nature of the exploration changes uh from book to book um i'm very interested i've always been very interested in um sort of crime noir type plots um Mm -hmm. where you are sort of getting to a truth 
you know, um, like peeling away the layers of an onion to get, you know, at, at the core. I think that's something that always appeals to me, that feeling of kind of moving the characters through the story, getting closer and closer to a kind of a confrontation or a discovery that will you know, be the sort of crooks of the thing. Yeah, yeah. I definitely see that in your most recent fantasy books. That, yeah. I mean, when you were talking about noir, I was going to ask... Is that something that came up when you were writing up to the phone? Definitely, uh, definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, there's, a, there's, um, yeah, it's a very strong noir interest, in, interest there. Um, I remember at one point, um, the first time I ever sort of tried to write it, I basically had a copy of um, a Raymond Chandler novel and a copy of um, a Dragonlance book, <laughs> which was sort of my <laughs> reference points, and what came out of it was completely different. But yeah. I, absolutely, that sense of intrigue and characters sort of how, how they interact with each other. Sometimes we go back to Gormenghast in a way. That idea, not of just a sort of heroic plot where we're all gathering our allies and we're going to take down a baddie, but that sense of who can we trust, how do we interact, what do we want? That kind yes. of very appealing, and that's a kind of exploration. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Dark Renaissance, Pete, because I, I wanted to ask how's um, book number three It's coming on coming fine. Along? It's coming on fine. Uh, I mean, there is a gaming link to this, actually, because one of the inspirations for this was um, many, many years ago, there was a computer game called Thief, which was yeah. uh, a sort of medieval-y, steampunky sort of game where you basically crept around, avoided guards and stole objects. And that was... Yeah, an amazing game in terms of that exploration feel because you weren't just moving through rooms to kill things, you're moving through rooms to find things and pick up letters and read them. And, you know, there's this sort of 3D element, literally, but, you know, some more uh, a detailed feel to the setting. Um, yeah, the, the current book is coming on really well, actually. Um, it's currently uh, with my with the editor, um, Sam, um, of Crons. Um, and oh, Sam. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, Good work. Deborah herself. Yeah, and, um, yeah, it... it Again, it's. I feel that the more of these I write, the more confidence I'm, I've got. This is a slightly bigger story. It brings in more characters. It brings in a larger scope because it's there's a siege of a city is involved. Um, yeah, it, it, I'm really pleased with that, actually. I'm really enjoying it. It's a setting that I really like going back to um, because there's you've got all the sort of... Um, all the, all the kind of advantages of writing about a kind of Renaissance setting. But you, you're also writing kind of caricature in a way. You know, it's all slightly more exaggerated because you've got this aspect of magic that can just mean that your, you know, your, your flying machine actually does work and doesn't just end up in <laughs> sort of margin drawing by Da Vinci. You know, somehow or other it will take to the air. And you can, you can get around that. And yeah, it's great fun to do as a result. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, are we likely to see that this year? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hoping to get that out sort of ooh, next few months, actually. Nice. Um, yeah, it, it's, you know, the, the basic writing is finished, so it's just an editing and cover art and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, so that's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to doing that. Yeah, it's nice to be back in that sort of setting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and as to sort of future products, well, I mean, both the Smith setting and the Renaissance one have got, tons of mileage in i think the um the book i released last year the imposters was a sort of spin-off from space captain smith set in a sort of corner of their world in fact it's kind of rogue one to space captain smith's uh, star wars you know it's a dark it's a darker <laughs> story and the more complicated one and a stranger one but it's still got a lot of the sort of 
that there's a big, you know, big overlap in terms of, sort of style and tone. It's just a bit less obviously comedic. And yeah, that was great fun to do. Um, so sometimes what you're doing is you're coming to a setting, you're not creating something, uh, a setting from scratch. You're coming in at a different angle, you know, and that's where the freshness is coming from. Fantastic. Uh, well, is there anything that we've missed? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so before we go, we've got our usual couple of questions. Oh, okay. So I'm going to ask you, what are you reading at the moment? At the moment, I am reading uh, The Damnation Game by Clive Barker. Um, oh, Bean will be very pleased with you. I, I think I <laughs> Bark, uh, Barker is exceedingly gory and yes. gruesome, but he's also a fantastic prose writer. Yeah, I, I would put him in my top five writers of prose, basically. Oh, um, who I, are your top five writers of prose? <laughs> oh, no, you got me there. Um, <laughs> I, I can give you, yeah, I, I, well, okay. I know Mervyn Peake. Mervyn Peake is probably in there. Raymond Chandler and George Orwell are definitely in there. And as for five, well, that might change from day to day. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's so many nice turns of phrase um, that he uses. And he's, he's just got such a good sort of lyrical voice. You know, he's, and he, he manages to write in this kind of poetic sort of way, despite all the horrors he's describing, um, without becoming purple, you know, without the prose becoming heavy and dead. So I, it's, I've been reading a couple of crime novels before then, which were okay. And it's such a change to read someone where you, you genuinely enjoy just reading what they're writing, you know. It, you could almost sort of read his shopping list and it will be really good, though it might be a bit terrifying. Yeah. Excellent. Well, maybe we'll have you back to talk about some Clive Barker. Bean will be over the moon, if that's the case. You never know. Okay, one more question. Okay. So that's what you're reading at the moment. What would you highlight to our listeners as recommended reading? What's Toby Frost's recommended book? Okay. Uh, well, uh, well, there's this exciting author called Toby Frost that I recommend. Um, <laughs> you've, had, you've, you've done your plug. Move yeah, on. No. Um, no, stuff I would really recommend. Gosh. Um, I mean, again, it's, it's those same authors. Um, you know, I, I, I love the Raymond Chandler crime books. I find that I can just sort of open them at any page and something interesting will be happening. Um, I'm a big fan of... Um, Orwell's essays, which is a bit of an unusual one, but there again, the writing is so clear and it's just very, very, con very sort of sharp, concise, clear writing and analysis. And I love those. Um, one of my favourite books ever uh, is Count Zero by William Gibson, which mm. I just think is has got one of the best openings I've ever read. It's just brilliant. So yeah, there's that's few. Gosh, what else would I recommend? epic fantasy i recently read um tad williams's um memory sorrow and thorn books mm -hmm. uh, those are interesting um i think they're really good i think they're also quite wordy um you know he he might need he could be trimmed down a bit but i think those are very good Gosh, other books. Um, well, you've given us a, a few, isn't a whole, it? Yeah, yeah you've given bad. us a whole library. Yeah, the Earl bad. of Sepulgrave would take a <laughs> take a fair while to get through all that. So that's plenty. Yeah, that's not bad. Good stuff. Yeah, that's a start. Yeah. All right, uh, Toby, it's been fantastic talking well, to it's you. Been it's really been loads enjoyable. of fun. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, Pete, got anything more that we've missed? Nothing at all. 
There we go. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us again, Toby. Yeah, it's been great fun. And, you know, maybe in the future we'll have you back and we'll talk about something, whether it's Clive Barker or something else. Um, so in, until then, see you next time. Thanks. This month's episode of Cronscast was brought to you by Dan Jones and Pete Long and our special guest, Toby Frost. Additional content was provided by Damaris Brown and Christopher Bean. Special thanks to Brian Turner and all the staff at Crons, and thanks to you for listening. Join us next month when our special guest will be the acclaimed fantasy author and winner of the British Fantasy Award, R.J. Barker. We'll be rabbiting on about one of the all-time great pieces of fantasy literature, Watership Down. 